Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 2. The bulk of this chapter is made up by a rather lengthy list of all the individuals and families who took part in the first wave of return. I mentioned in the last episode that there were three waves of deportation and, correspondingly, three waves of return. The first major wave of return is depicted in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. So we need to have a list of who the main characters were in this part of the story. Modern-day Bible readers tend not to love this sort of chapter. Derek Kidner faces that fact rather directly in his commentary, saying, This chapter, however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care and to Israel's vitality. So it is important. It is saying something that we need to be careful to see. It is saying, first of all, that God is a careful, powerful sovereign and faithful God. He doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't lose track. He doesn't forget. He put the covenant community on timeout, but he came back when he said he would come back and he let them go. More than that, he provided for their release and he sovereignly gave them favor with a foreign power. He made generous and ample provision for the return and restoration of his people. Thanks be to God. So that's the main idea here for us as modern readers. But there is more here for those who have eyes to see. We can also detect a strong concern to establish the essential continuity between this group of returnees and the original covenant people who possessed and lived in the land. So Marshall Johnson, in his book, The Purpose of Biblical Genealogies, says here, Underneath the notion of legitimacy and racial purity is the desire to express the continuity of the people of God. That is to say, the identity of the new Israel of the Restoration with the old Israel of the monarchy. Legitimacy and continuity are major themes in this portion of Scripture, and they remain major themes in the history of Israel even today. Were the Jews of the return really and truly the descendants of the Jews who lived in the land in an earlier time? That was no incidental question. The Jews knew that question was going to be asked, and so they came prepared to answer that question and to demonstrate and prove their biological bona fides. So that's what's going on here in terms of the big picture. There are, however, a few details that remain a little murky. The first one of those has to do with the specific number of returns in this first wave of returns. In chapter 1, we heard about an edict that was issued under Cyrus in the year 538 BC. We're told that all the gold and silver items associated with the temple were released into the care of Sheshbazar. But then here in Ezra 2, we don't hear anything about Sheshbazar. We hear about a return being led by a person named Zerubbabel. So that raises the question, how many returns were there in this first wave? And what was the relationship between Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar? 
are they the same guy? Are they two different guys? Are they two different guys associated with two different returns? These are some of the questions that scholars and commentators wrestle with when they deal with this chapter. We'll try to guide you through some of that as we encounter these issues in the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Seraiah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. So as mentioned, it appears that this wave of returnees is being led by a group of people, most notably Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Zerubbabel and Jeshua will feature prominently in the book of Zechariah, which runs roughly parallel to this era. Zechariah portrays them very much as a team. In chapter 4 of his work, he portrays them symbolically as two olive trees. Their oil, as it were, is bringing the light and witness of the covenant people back to life. So these are the two main leaders associated with this return. But what then has become of Sheshbazar? Sheshbazar was identified as the leader of the exiles in Ezra chapter 1. So in Ezra 1.8, it says, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And then Ezra 1.11 says, All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. But then here in chapter 2, Sheshbazar disappears. And the only other mention of him in the story takes place in Ezra 5 in a letter written by Tatanai, identified as the governor of the province beyond the river. He writes to King Darius in 519 BC, asking for verification as to the right of the Jews to be conducting this entire enterprise. And in that letter, he summarizes his own understanding of the history of the project, and he mentions Sheshbazar as having played a pivotal role. So in Ezra 5, 14 to 16, it says, And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go, and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Closed quote. All right, so who is Sheshbazar? According to Ezra 1, and according to Tatnai in Ezra 5, he laid the foundation stone of the temple, and he officially took custody of all the silver and gold and other temple implements. So how come he isn't mentioned in Ezra 2 as being part of the return? Well, there are a variety of theories. One theory is that Sheshbazar was the formal leader of the group, but most of the actual leadership and governance was done by Zerubbabel. Now, as a Canadian, I have a frame of reference 
for this particular model. Queen Elizabeth II is technically our head of state, but most of the heavy lifting and almost all of the practical governing is done by our elected prime minister. So that could be what is going on here. Sheshbazar could be playing a largely ceremonial role. He officially received the implements and he officially laid the foundation stone. But Zerubbabel was, for all intents and purposes, the man in charge. That's the main theory, and, and I would argue the most likely, but there are others. Some say that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are actually the same guy. Those are just different names for the same guy. And that sounds plausible at first, because we remember that Daniel had a second name too. He was also known as Belteshazzar. That was his Babylonian name. So some say that could be what's going on here. The problem with that theory, though, is the fact that both Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are Persian names. Neither of those names is a Hebrew name. So what would be the point of switching back and forth between two Persian names? Now, some people suggest that perhaps Sheshbazar was the first governor of the returnees, but then he died before the actual departure, at which point Zerubbabel became the governor. The only problem with that theory, then, would be the letter of Tatani, written later. But maybe he was an error. The, the Bible doesn't say that his letter was correct. It just says, this is the letter he wrote. So that could be it. But on the whole, I think the simplest answer is that Sheshbazar had some sort of initial standing, that he played a certain official role, but that the on-site heavy lifting and general governance was done by Zerubbabel. He was the man on the ground. And so he dominates this part of the story, whereas Sheshbazar is mentioned briefly and thereafter ignored. Now, how you land on that question influences whether you see one return here or a series of returns as part of the first wave. It's entirely possible that Zerubbabel led a large group of working returnees, the ones who were going to do all the labor, the ones depicted here. And then a few years later, once most of the work had been done, Sheshbazar would arrive with the items he had formerly taken possession of. He would lay the foundation stone. There'd be a little ceremony there. And then he would return back to Babylon to serve as the representative of the exiles in Persia, whereupon at some point he died and disappeared from the story. That seems totally plausible to me. But if you have a slightly different theory, then I imagine I could live with that as well. Regardless, we have a substantial group of returnees led by Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and some other, presumably, tribal leaders. The list is given in an organized fashion, beginning with the people, followed by the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, Solomon's servants, the undocumented, and various others. We pick up the story in the latter half of verse 2. The number of the men of the people of Israel the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 775. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Babai, 623. 
the sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Atter, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Azmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Chafira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sana'ah, 3,630. Now, you will have noticed there that in the first half of the list, the men are identified by their family name, but then in the second half of the list, they are identified by their territory of origin. Scholars debate amongst themselves as to why the people are listed in this way. The most likely answer would seem to be that the people in verses 3 to 20 were from prominent families who owned the land and who maintained title to that land. Those listed in verses 21 to 35 are to be understood as the poor of the land. Those people who were more associated with a place than with a prominent family. The point is that this wave of returnees included people from every stratum of Jewish society. Next, in verses 36 to 39, we have a listing of the priests who were part of the first wave of return. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. Now, only four priestly families are mentioned as being part of the first wave of return, and there were originally 24 of them, so that's not great. But on the other hand, those four families produced some pretty large numbers. The priests listed here represent 10% of the total return. The buy-in from these families, thus, was obviously fairly extensive, far more so than the buy-in demonstrated by the Levites. We pick up that part of the story in verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadovia, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai. In all, 139. 
All right, so that's not a very big number. If you add those numbers up, you, you get 341 people as compared to 4,289 from the four priestly families. Ezra, in the second wave of return, runs into the same problem. When he started counting at the assembly point, he discovered that for whatever reason, there wasn't a lot of buy-in from the Levites. So Ezra 8 verse 15 says, As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So Ezra has to make a special appeal, and he's able to get 38 Levites to join the caravan, in addition to some 220 temple servants, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So why were the Levites so poorly represented in the first two waves of return? Some scholars suggest that it was because a return at this point would represent a significant risk for the Levites. They were down the pecking order from the priests, so if the people didn't give and support the work of the temple, then they would likely end up in abject poverty. Levites, of course, didn't get a land allotment. They had to live on the overflow of the religious cult. I use that in a, that term, cult, in a technical sense. Now, to make a contemporary analogy, this is a little bit like church planting. One of the reasons that church planting is typically done by pastors in their 20s is because it's hard to say to a pastor in his 50s who has three kids in university and one about to get married, you might not be able to draw a salary for the next two to three years. But a 23-year-old seminary student might look at that as something of an adventure. The point is, the Levites were likely to be the ones paying the price if this project didn't get off the ground. And they knew that. So only a few of them were willing to make the leap. Some other scholars suggest that perhaps the Levites were already impoverished by the time of the Babylonian exile, and therefore proportionately fewer of them were taken in to exile in Babylon in the first place. Of course, this second option is complementary to the first. Regardless, for whatever reason, there weren't many of them, and that becomes a challenge later on in this story. The story and the list continues in verse 43. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezan, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephisim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jeelah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. 
Now, we don't know as much about these two groups as we would like to. The temple servants, or Nethanim, as they were called in Hebrew, were probably menial servants who were under the authority and oversight of the Levites. So H.G.M. Williamson says here, It is thus probable that just as the Levites were given to serve the priests, so the Nethanim were given to serve the Levites, implying at best they were responsible for the very menial tasks that must have needed to be done around the temple, closed quote. So they were not slaves. Rather, they were a sort of endowed hereditary guild. They were general laborers who worked in and around the temple, and unlike the Levites, they were apparently eager to return and resume their service. Now, as for the sons of Solomon's servants, we know even less about this group, but the assumption is that they were a subgroup of the Nethanim, perhaps people who were originally conquered by Solomon and instead of being executed, had been given by him as an endowed gift to the service of the temple. This sort of thing happened fairly frequently in the ancient world. If a king defeated another king in battle, he would take some captives and give them as a gift to the local temple. In all probability, that's what's going on here. Now, in verses 59 to 63, we encounter some lay people and some potential priests who had lost their family papers. So, verse 59 says, The following were those who came up from Tel-Melah, Tel-Harsha, Kerub, Adan, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nekoda. 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. Here we see that the Jewish people were in the habit of keeping detailed family records. Again, there's a major concern here to demonstrate legitimacy and continuity. And so the author is saying that we didn't just take anybody who said they were Jewish or anyone who said they had a family connection to the land. If they couldn't prove it, if they couldn't produce their paperwork, then they were welcome to come, but they were treated as the poor of the land. They couldn't take ownership of ancestral property, nor could they participate in sacred rituals or draw priestly support until their identity was confirmed. That was the decision rendered by the governor whom we assume at this point in the story to have been Zerubbabel. With respect to the potential priest, they were told to wait until a priest, or more likely the high priest, could consult the Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim were used by the priest to determine God's will, usually in terms of a yes or no answer to a direct question. Now, we don't know exactly how that worked, but scholars often suggest that there were two stones or two bones with distinct sides, like heads or tails on a coin. You would cast the two together and you would get either a yes, a no, or a no answer. <laughs> so if you think of modern coins, the priest would say, is this man truly a priest from the family of Pashur? 
And then he would throw two coins on the ground or on the table. If two heads came up, so both coins came up with the head showing, then the answer was yes. If two tails came up, then the answer was no. But if one coin showed heads and the other showed tails, that was understood as no answer, which in this case would basically be no. Now, as I said, that's our best guess as to how this ritual was conducted. Regardless, the point is you had to prove your identity to resume your duties as a priest of the Lord. Verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337 and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Now, if you're good at math, then you might have noticed that the numbers we have there in the first 63 verses actually fall short of the number given here by about 11,000. So, who were these extra people? Most scholars suggest that this likely reflects the tradition of only officially counting the males. So the 11,000 extra people in the final count are the women, though that means that three quarters of this caravan was made up of men, which means that 50% of the men must have been unmarried. And that makes a certain amount of sense. This was certain to be a long, arduous, dangerous undertaking, and the people most likely to undertake such a venture would be younger, unmarried men. You don't take a wife and children on this kind of journey. So it was largely made up of younger, single men. And that explains why the problem of mixed marriages becomes such an issue later on in this story. Verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Most commentators note the similarities between this story here at the end of the chapter and the story of the free will offering in Exodus 25 and then again in Exodus 35. And those similarities are probably intentional. This story, the story of the return from exile, was understood by the people as a sort of second exodus. Just like the Lord had brought them safely out of Egypt and established them in the promised land, so too now, many years and centuries later, he would do it again. He would do it for them, and he would do it through them, through everyone whose heart was stirred and whose spirit was willing. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, 
with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.